The Lord be with you. I want to start today's class with a brief reading from Scripture, not from the Epistle to the Romans, which is what we're studying, but from the second Psalm, Psalm 2, and then we'll have a prayer. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. This is a prayer for the peace of the world. Let us pray. Almighty God, from whom all thoughts of truth and peace proceed, kindle, we pray thee, in every heart the true love of peace. And guide with thy pure and peaceable wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth. Draw us closer to one another and help us to attain justice and freedom and to use our resources for the good of people everywhere. That in tranquility thy kingdom may go forward till the earth is filled with the knowledge of thy love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Obviously that is a prayer that we and the whole world need at this particular point, as I'm sure most of you are aware. Russia has launched a full-scale assault on the people of the Ukraine, and the implications, um, the ramifications for that will be felt the world over, including here at home. So we are living in very tense times, but we should remember that God is still on the throne and He is still in control. The psalmist asked that question because there was trouble in his day. Why do the nations rage? We ask the question today. But the answer to the world's problems are the same today as they were when the psalmist spoke those words. God alone is the author of all peace and concord. And so we appeal to him that he might intervene and make a way where there appears to be no way. God have mercy on the people of the Ukraine and on us all. We're in Romans chapter 2 today, so if you want to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 2, and we're going to do something unprecedented. We're going to read the entire chapter, and we are going to, God willing, finish chapter 2 today. Now, you can just imagine how long it took us to get through Romans chapter 1, but we're going to go through Romans chapter 2 at a fairly rapid pace. And hopefully it will become apparent why that is the case. So Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes these words, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law that will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you are preaching, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I'm not sure what was happening up there with the screen. Maybe it's a Russian cyber attack. I'm not sure. Let's hope not. We said when we finished chapter 1, that very depressing list of all those sins and vices that Paul gives us, you get to the beginning of chapter 2, and it's very easy for us, particularly as Christians, to look at that long list and shake our heads and say, that's right, Paul. The world is a mess. You're absolutely right in your analysis. I asked the question last week, after I'd read through the end of chapter 1, how many of you would agree that that's a description of the culture in which we live? And it was a unanimous opinion, yet yes, that is an apt description of where we are. But as I said, it's so easy for us to look at the world and think the problem is with those people. And what Paul does there in those opening verses of chapter 2 is that he disabuses us of the idea that somehow we are innocent and the problem is out there in the world, as though we have not in some way ourselves been complicit. And so Paul calls us to account there at the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, 
Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, if you could say anything about the Apostle Paul, and there are lots of things you could say about him, but certainly one thing that you can say about the Apostle Paul is that Paul is tenacious. Once he gets his teeth into an argument, he is determined to absolutely tear that argument to shreds until there is absolutely nothing left. There is no place to hide. And that's what he's going to do. He has stated his argument at the beginning of chapter 2 that no one has an excuse, that we are all messed up. We are all caught up in the sin and the wickedness of the world, and we are just as guilty as those who outwardly are practicing these things. And what he's going to go on to do in the rest of the chapter is he is really going to explain how that is so. You know, when people are accused of doing something wrong, when they're caught in the act, most of the time, their initial response is not to admit it. Most of the time, what we try to do is come up with excuses, don't we? Excuses that somehow explain away our behavior. Well, you, yes, I did do that, but you don't understand the circumstances. And Paul knows that when we look at the world, that's what we want to do. And there are two excuses primarily that people give that Paul refers to here in chapter 2. The first excuse is the excuse of morality. Oh, yes, that's a terrible thing that's going on in the world. Those are terrible things that he describes there, those dishonorable passions, the envy, the murder, the strife, the deceit, the malice, the gossip, the slanderers, the haters of God. All of those things are terrible things. And those people ought to be called to account, but I don't practice those things. Not to say that I'm perfect, mind you, but I'm not necessarily engaged in those things. And so we give the excuse of morality. And Paul disabuses us of the idea that any of us is a truly moral being. Who among us, no matter what standard we have, whether it's the standard of the Ten Commandments we talked about last week, or the standard of the Sermon on the Mount, or even the standard of the old English virtue of just fair play, every single one of us is condemned by whatever standard we use to judge other people. So morality is no excuse. You're not going to be excused on the basis of your behavior. But the second excuse that people often give that Paul now addresses in the second part of chapter 2 is the whole excuse of religion. Well, somehow we're special. Yes, we're not perfect, but we are religious. And that's what Paul is going to deal with here. I think one of the most revealing passages, no pun intended, in the section that I read to you, is that part in verse 6 where Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. For God sees the human heart. We have a collect. We use it at the beginning of every communion service. It's called the collect for purity. It's one of my favorite collects. And it, that collect, if you think about what it says, can be either very good news or very bad news. That collect goes... Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. 
Now, I say that that can be very bad news because who among us wants to have our secrets known? And we've all got them. We talked about that last week. We've all got secrets. There are those things that we have done. There are those thoughts that we've had that we don't really want anyone else to know about. I think one 20th century author who really captured this, perhaps better than anyone else, is the existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. French playwright and author and philosopher, as I said, an extraordinary individual in many respects, although I find his writings to be very engaging, I also find them to be very depressing. And Sartre made the distinction between what he called the subject and the object. He wrote a series of essays. The essays were called words. And he makes the distinction between a subject and an object. And he said, to be truly human, you have to be the subject. Now, what did he mean there? He meant that a subject is someone or something that acts upon another, whereas an object is the thing that is acted upon. And so he used this illustration. He said it's the illustration of a man who is standing in a long corridor, probably in a hotel, and there are all these doors in the hallway, and he is looking through the keyhole into one of those rooms. Now, as he's looking into the keyhole, he is the what? He's the subject, looking in on someone else who is the object. And as long as he is the subject... He feels at peace. He can see them, but they can't see him. He can see what they're doing, but they cannot see what he is doing. And so he is at peace. He's confident. He's not feeling threatened. Until all of a sudden, he notices out of the corner of his eye that there is somebody who is peeking around the corner and looking at him. At which point... The one who was the subject becomes the what? The object. And when you become the object, what do you feel at that moment? Shame. Guilt. All of those terrible feelings that we do not want. Well, Paul says here in Romans chapter 2, we may think that we are the subjects looking at other people and standing in judgment of them, but he said it's not actually the case. We are, in fact, the object. And God looks at every single one of us, and He sees. And, of course, those feelings of shame and guilt, they are the result of being what? Exposed. And that's why I say that colic and what it expresses can be very bad news because nobody likes to be exposed. Now, that colic can also be good news. We talked a little bit about this last week. It can be good news because what it means is that he is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, the one from whom no secrets are hid, and yet he loves us in spite of it. And we said that is true freedom, to be fully known and to be fully loved in spite of it. But that can be painful. It can be painful. None of us wants to have our dirty laundry aired. And yet Paul says that is exactly what is going to happen 
He said, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. For God shows no partiality. Yes. Right. What Paul is really dealing with there is that those who long for a relationship with God, those who are seeking His glory, those who are seeking to have an eternal relationship with Him, to those who are seeking those things, those things that are noble, good, lovely, pure, they will find them. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, but also here at the beginning of Romans chapter 2. He's saying that people are without excuse. Because the problem is not that they are ignorant of the truth, The problem is that they have suppressed the truth. God has made himself known in the things that have been made. So even somebody, and he's going to go on to expand on this when he talks a little bit about the Jews and the law and so forth, even those who do not have the law nevertheless have written on their conscience, written on their hearts, a sense of morality. Remember that quote that I used last week from C.S. Lewis. And basically what he's saying is that if you know that there is a moral law in the universe, then you should know that there is a lawgiver. And if you earnestly seek that lawgiver, you will find him. And so that's what Paul is talking about. Those who earnestly seek will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So that's the argument that he is making here. Now, Paul is saying that we are the objects. God is the subject. He knows everything that we do, every thought that we have, and he will judge in an impartial manner. Look at verse 16. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, when a person is exposed, when a person finds that the secrets of their hearts have been revealed. And incidentally, this is the interesting part, the New Testament seems to indicate that on that great day of judgment, when the secrets of men's hearts will be revealed, it's not just going to be revealed to God. He already knows it. It's going to be revealed to everyone. And as I said, the result of that is that we often experience shame, guilt, fear, embarrassment. Now, what normally happens when you experience those things? What is man's solution to being the object of God's gaze? Well, we normally do two things. One, of course, is yes, we try to hide from God. The perfect example of that is what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Go back then, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what is interesting to me, initially at least, is that the woman understood the parameters. This was not a case where she was ignorant of the truth. She had been told that she could eat of any tree in the garden, but if she ate of that one tree in the midst of the garden, she would surely die. So she knew the parameters, she knew the truth. What does she do, though? She does exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. She suppresses the truth. And she's deceived. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Now, they'd been naked up to this point, but they didn't feel exposed. But now, having violated the law of God, it's not as though they suddenly realize, oh, we're naked. What they realize is that they've been exposed. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What did they try to do? Well, the first thing they tried to do was to cover their guilt, cover their shame, cover their embarrassment as best they could. And human beings have continued to do that down through the ages. When that is not sufficient, the next thing they do is they try to hide from the Lord. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So they tried to hide from God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And there's the exposure. The one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom what? No secrets are hid. You can no longer cover your shame. You can no longer hide from God. You have been exposed. But that's what we tried to do. And when we cannot do that, when we cannot hide from God, what do we do? We attempt to banish him from our lives. Let me just go back for a minute to Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre had been raised as a Roman Catholic. Now, he became one of the world's most famous intellectuals and atheists. But it's really interesting to hear the story of his deconversion, if you will. He says that there was a moment in his life when he keenly felt the presence of God. He said he was actually in the house And he was disobeying his parents who had told him not to play with matches. And he was playing with matches and he burned the hole in a valuable carpet in the living room. And he said, at that moment, I felt the presence of God. I felt God stare. I felt the weight of guilt. I felt the shame. And he said, in an instant, I flew to the bathroom and I slammed the door And I cursed God. I cursed God over and over again as I had heard my grandfather curse God. 
And he said, from that moment on, God never looked at me again. Now, the reality is that God never stopped looking at John Paul Sartre. The problem was that Sartre stopped looking at God. I'm going to banish him from my life because I no longer want to be the object of his gaze. The object of his gaze. Well, that's what we try to do as human beings, isn't it? We try to cover up our guilt with excuses. We try to hide from God, and when none of that works, because of the guilt and the shame that we experience, we do what? We banish God from our lives. We say, well, we just don't believe that He is there, because if He is there, not there, then we can do as we please, and nobody can gaze upon us and hold us accountable. Now, let's just go back to this story of Adam and Eve for a moment. That's man's solution to the problem of being under the gaze of God, of recognizing that he is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do. What is God's solution to our guilt, to our shame, to our culpability, to our embarrassment? What is God's answer to it? Well, it's interesting. Look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, it's interesting after they had been found out, after they had tried to hide themselves from the Lord, but He sought them out and found them in the garden and exposed their guilt, what had they tried to do to cover up their guilt? They had made clothing for themselves out of fig leaves, hadn't they? Well, what you'll notice as you get to the end of chapter 3, the story of the fall, is that they do get clothed. Their, their sin, their wickedness, their nakedness, if you will, has to be clothed, but it can't be clothed with anything that they have made. God has to make clothing for them. And you'll notice that it is not clothing made out of fig leaves. It's clothing made out of what? Skins. Now, in order for there to be skins, what has to happen? Something has to die. That's exactly what God had said to them in the beginning. If you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, you can eat of any other tree, but if you eat of that tree in the midst of the garden, you will die. That is the consequence for sin. Paul talks about that here in Romans. The wages of sin is death. But what God does is that rather than taking their life, He provides a substitute. And he covers them with the sacrifice of the substitute. See, right there, at the very beginning of the Bible, in the very first three chapters of the Bible, what we have is a harbinger of the things that are to come, foreshadowing of that great and ultimate substitute, 
who is Jesus Christ, who at the price of his own shed blood covers us with his righteousness, covers our shame, our guilt, our embarrassment with his righteousness. That's God's solution to you and to me being found out. But there is another way that we try to justify our behavior. We said the first way that we try to excuse ourselves and justify our behavior is by saying, well, we're not like those people. And Paul exposes that. He said, oh, yes, you're just as bad as all those other people. But here's the second way that we have a tendency to try to excuse our behavior and avoid the gaze of God. And that is to talk about religion. If we cannot appeal to our own morality, we will at least appeal to religion, to our religious practices. I think in the first part of chapter 2, Paul is probably addressing what we would call those moral Gentiles. You know, not all Gentiles were absolutely corrupt. There were some very noble Gentiles. Uh, You think about the Stoics, for example. Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. The Stoics were very moral people. They were rather depressing people because they didn't feel that life had any purpose, that history had no direction whatsoever. The only thing you could do is try to live as noble a life as you possibly could. They were depressing, but they were noble, and they did try to live according to a moral standard. And it may very well be that Paul is addressing those people there in the first part of chapter 2 when he says, look, if you think that you're a moral person, I'm going to expose your immorality. But I think in the second part of Romans chapter 2, what he's describing is not those who necessarily claim to be somehow superior, to have the moral high ground. He's talking about those who say, well, we're special because we're religious. And in this instance, he is clearly addressing the Jews. He's clearly addressing the Jews because, of course, that was exactly their argument. Oh, yes, we know that the world is a mess, but but we're different from the world because we are religious. We are religious. Look at verse 17. But you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. If you think that you're going to find yourself acceptable to God, either by your morality, Paul says that simply is not true, but if you think you're going to find yourself acceptable to God simply because you are a religious individual and all your life have engaged in religious practices, he said you are going to be sorely disappointed as well. It's interesting what he says here. He he goes on to catalog all of the things that the Jews had that were an advantage and that they appealed to, that made them feel special, that made them feel acceptable to God just on the basis of the fact that they were Jews. He mentions a number of things. In verse 17, he mentions the fact that they felt that they were somehow special, acceptable to God, because they were just that. They were Jews. They were God's chosen people. They were different among all the nations of the earth. God had chosen them to be a light to the Gentiles. Not only that, but they regarded themselves as special because as Jews, they alone had been given the law. 
Everybody else lived in ignorance. Everybody else was ignorant of what God's plans were, what God's law were, what God's standards were, but the Jews were not. The Jews were God's chosen people, and to them, and to them alone, had been given the law of God. And because the law of God had been given to them, they alone, among the nations of the earth, could understand the will of God. That's what he talks about in verse 18. You, yourself, a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, and know His will. And if you don't know the law of God, you cannot understand the will of God. But the Jews would say, we're different, we're special from the other peoples of the earth. Yes, they are terrible and they're wicked, but we're different because we have been given the law of God, we've been chosen by God, and we can discern what God's will is. And we can approve of what is acceptable. We are therefore, among all the peoples of the earth, guides to the blind, a light to those who sit in darkness. We are instructors of the foolish and teachers of children. See, the moral Roman, the moral Greek, reads what Paul has to say there in Romans chapter 1 and shakes his head and said, oh, that's, that's terrible, Paul. The world is a real mess, but we're not like that. In other words, we don't really need your gospel, Paul, because we're moral people. We're, we're good people. We're upstanding citizens. And Paul goes on to disabuse them of that idea. The Jews, however, object to the message of Paul's gospel. Why? Because we have all the advantages. We are God's chosen people. We have been given the law. Don't come to us and talk to us about how somehow we are just like the Romans or just like the Greeks. No, we're special. We are different. Somehow feel that you're different? Do you ever feel morally superior to those around you? Do you ever look around and think to yourself, yes, I'm not perfect, but I do go to church every Sunday? I've been confirmed, I've been baptized, in fact, I'm not just a churchgoer, I'm one of a long line of churchgoers, I'm a church warden, I've served on the vestry, I have whatever it is. You ever thought that to yourself? Oh, let's be honest, we've all at one point or another thought that to ourselves, we thought to ourselves, yeah, that's me, that's, you know, not perfect, but certainly... By comparison, because we know God grades on the curve and all of that, that it's, it's going to be all right in the end. That's what the Jews thought. And here's what's interesting. Everything that they say, everything that they claimed, everything that Paul catalogs for us there in the second part of Romans chapter 2 was the case. Hey, that was absolutely true. They were God's chosen people. Why did he choose them among all the nations of the earth? We don't know. Because it pleased God to do so. He could have chosen somebody else. If you and I had been God and wanted to choose a great nation to make a big splash in the world, chances are we would not have chosen the Jews. Maybe the Egyptians or or the Greeks or the Assyrians or the Romans or somebody, but not the Jews. But God chose the Jews. He set his affection upon them, made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be more than the stars in the heavens or the sands on the beach. That was true. They were God's chosen people. 
It is also true that they alone of all the nations of the earth had received the law. The commandments had been given to them alone. They were able, because of the law, to discern God's will. They were, therefore, guides to the blind. They were intended to be a light to enlighten the Gentiles who sat in darkness. They were instructors to those who were foolish, whose foolish hearts, as Paul says in Romans 1, had been darkened. And they were an instructor to children, that they might grow and attain spiritual maturity. All of that was true. And what's interesting is that Jesus himself acknowledged that this was true. Keep your finger there in Romans for just a moment and turn, if you will, to John chapter 4. This is a somewhat familiar story to you. It's a rather lengthy story, but I want to go ahead and read through it anyway, because I want you to see that Jesus is saying that everything that the Jews claimed was absolutely the case. This is the story of the woman of Samaria. You'll recall that Jesus and his disciples were traveling. They had departed again from Galilee. They had been in Judea in the south. In order to go to Galilee in the north, you had to go one of two routes. You either had to go the long Transjordan route, cross the Jordan River and pass to the north and then recross the Jordan River into Galilee. Or you could go the more direct route, which was right through the region of Samaria, which was sandwiched between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. The problem, of course, is that while that was the more direct route, and quite frankly the safer route, the problem was that it was a route that took you through Samaria. And Samaria was considered to be unclean territory because of people lived there who were, in the minds of the Jews, worse than the Gentiles. They were half-breeds. They had sold out. They had been Jews that had intermingled with pagan people. And they had their own practices. They sort of mixed pagan practices with Jewish practices. They even had their own temple. Now, the text says that Jesus had to go through that region. He didn't technically have to go through that region, but apparently he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go through that region. Let's just read the story for a moment. And I want you to notice what Jesus says to the woman. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, you know the story. I'm not going to go ahead and expand on everything here. You know that this woman is notorious. Sixth hour is the middle of the afternoon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's got her back up. And Jesus answered her, listen, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now here it comes. The woman up to this point thinks she's the subject. She's going to discover she's the object. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. One unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now that's exposure. And the woman said to him, and one of the great understatements of Scripture, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> but what I want you to notice is what she says next. She's been exposed, and what do we do when we are exposed? Well, we either try to hide from God or excuse our behavior, or we appeal to religion. And that's what she does. She tries to deflect the gaze of this man, Jesus, by getting into a debate about theology. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus knows exactly what she's doing, and he's going to have none of it. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews right there. Jesus is acknowledging that salvation comes through the Jews. They were special. They were unique. And Jesus acknowledges that. And Paul, even though he's calling them to task here, is by no means suggesting that the Jews weren't special. He himself acknowledges this. Skip ahead to Romans chapter 9 for just a minute. We should get there, I think, sometime around the year 2026. So if you get there to Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what Paul says, and we're not going to go into what he's actually saying here in Romans chapter 9 in terms of the argument that he's making, because remember, everything that Paul says builds. He's, like a, he's building a legal case almost. And, and one argument builds upon the another. But what I want you to understand is just that he acknowledges the fact that the Jews were unique. Here's what he says, chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here it comes. They are Israelites. That's exactly what he said in Romans chapter 2. Jews, they were Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, 
the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the Jews are trying to excuse the fact that they're not like other people. They don't stand under that same condemnation as the wicked world, or even the moral Greeks and Romans, they are special because they're religious. They are, have been given all of these advantages. And what is interesting is that Jesus acknowledges the fact that they've been given advantages. Paul acknowledges the fact that they had been given advantages. And yet Paul, in Romans chapter 2, says that they are still condemned along with everybody else. Why? Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not a matter of knowing the content of the gospel, but rather doing it. And we've talked about that before. Earlier in this chapter, Paul talks about the fact that we will be judged according to our what? Our works, according to our deeds. Now, we said that seems so strange. We want to throw up our arms and object and say, no, wait a minute. Paul said we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Isn't that what he said? Yes, he did. (laughs) So how can he now, is he going through some sort of schizophrenic episode where all of a sudden now he's saying that that's not the case? Not at all. But what Paul is saying is that the evidence of your faith, if it's a living faith, a true faith, a legitimate, genuine faith, will be evident in the way you live your life. Paul's like a terrier. He's latched on to this argument, and he is not going to let go of it. Nobody's going to come out of this unscathed. He wants everyone to understand that what? We all need some other form of salvation. Just as he did with those moral Gentiles who thought that they were somehow Special, he said, with the same standard by which you judge others, you will be judged so now with the Jews. He does the same thing. He asks a series of rhetorical questions. Again, verse 17 and following. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth... You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Well, of course, there were Jews who stole. They were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? There was a reason why that was one of the Ten Commandments. It's because people were doing it. You've heard me say before, the law is not given to prevent us from sinning. 
That's not why the law was given. If you think about it, when Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets in his hand, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And what does he find the people doing down there at the bottom of the mountain? Worshiping the golden calf. So he can go ahead and give them the law at that point, but the law is not going to prevent them from sinning. The only thing the law is going to do is reveal the fact that they already have. The law exposes us. That's its primary function. Most of the time, when you and I give law, when we lay down the law with our children, it's because they've already broken it. When you say, you shall not pull your sister's hair, you're giving that commandment because he already has. Isn't that true? So what the law does is it reveals our sin. And that's what Paul is doing here. He said, you abhor idols. Do you rob temples? And the fact remains, we know from history, that sometimes Jews did when they conquered other lands. They would oftentimes rob the temples. There may even been the case that they were robbing their own temple by failing to pay their tithes and their offerings. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Were the Jews lawbreakers? Of course they were. That's why they had that whole complex system of sacrifices. Because they needed that substitute, the blood of those sheep and goats, to cover their transgressions. So what Paul is saying is, you Jews, you think you're better, but you're really no better. You moral Greeks and Romans, you think that you're noble and good, but the reality is you're not all that great at all. Now you get to the end of this and you sit there and you say to yourself, that's right. And boy, did those people need salvation. But of course, Paul's whole argument here in Romans chapter 2 is not just about Greeks and Romans in the first century and Jews in Second Temple Judaism. He's talking about us, isn't he? We do precisely the same thing that the Romans do, but we also do precisely the same thing that the Jews do. Well, I think I'm going to get into heaven. I think I'm going to be all right with God. I'm not perfect, but I'm a devout Catholic. I go to Mass on a weekly basis. I make my confession to the priest. I do my acts of penance. I receive absolution. I'm a church-going Protestant. I'm there, and I'm not just one of those, you know, C and E Christians, you know, Christmas and Easter. I'm there every Sunday, and I have participated in all of the rites and ceremonies of the church. I've served on the vestry more than once. Again, I've been a church warden. My mother was an Episcopalian, and my great-grandmother was an Episcopalian, and uh, then what's more, they were all members of the Mother Church, St. Philip's, and that's got to count for something. And we have all of these things that we list, don't we? And we somehow think that they make us special. And what Paul is saying is that, no, that is not the case. 
I'm having problems up here with the screen. I'm sorry for that. I don't know why. I'd like to be, be able to bring it up here, but it doesn't want to come up here. Well, we'll post it on the website. Let's put it that way. Otherwise, I'd be able to bring it up right now. So let's just go ahead and give a brief recap of what Paul has been saying here in Romans chapter 2. He comes to Romans chapter 2, and this is his recap. He says, look, we look at the world, a world that is filled with every manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The world is filled with people who know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, but they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. But Paul says, you're no different. You can't claim the moral high ground because with whatever standard you're judging another person, you yourself are condemned by that standard. And if you think that by virtue of your religious activities that that makes you somehow special. He said, bear in mind that the Jews thought that they were special. But they too were under the judgment of God. Paul will talk about this elsewhere. He'll talk about the fact that he had a great many advantages. He had a great many advantages when he was a Jew, and of course he always was a Jew. Let me see if I've got the... Turn to Philippians for just a minute. See if I can pull it. No, maybe not. Never mind. (laughs) Sorry. I can't find the reference that I'm looking for right now. But one of the things that Paul says is that there was a time when he regarded himself as special. He talked about all of the assets that he had as a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, for example. And I think this is the way many of us look at our lives. We we have a tendency to look at our lives as though they're a giant ledger book. Ledger book, Ephesians 3? Philippians 3. I knew it was somewhere in there. Philippians chapter 3. Sometimes your brain just doesn't always work. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Thank you very much. There it is. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, look out for the dogs, Philippians 3, 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to say, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to list all of these tremendous advantages that he had. He said, first of all, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, as I said, I think most of us look at our lives as though it's a a ledger book. And the only way that you know that you're not going to be found guilty on the last day is if you have more in the asset column than you have in the liability column. And so we look at our lives and we say, well, I'm not perfect, but look at all of the assets I have. 
And that's exactly what Paul did. He, he looked at his life when he was living in Judaism, and he looked at all of the advantages that he had. Now, Paul knew that he wasn't perfect. Like every other Jew of his day, he had to make sacrifices to the temple and so forth on the Day of Atonement and all of that. But nevertheless, when Paul looked at his life, he had to say that from an outward point of view, and even as he evaluated his own inward motivation, he was better than the average Jew, far above him. Here's what he says, just a few things that he mentions. He said, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you may recall from Old Testament history, the tribe of Benjamin was the one faithful tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his way of saying, my mother was a Jew, and my father was a Jew. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I went out and got my graduate degree. I was a Pharisee, one of the most well-respected individuals in all of Judaism. I was zealous. I wasn't just one of those people who sort of showed up on church and slipped out the back door as quickly as possible as soon as the dismissal was made. Oh, no. I was zealous. I was serious about religion. I was zealous to the point of going out and persecuting people. As to righteousness under the law, this is the most extraordinary statement, I was blameless. In other words, according to the standards of the Pharisees, and a few weeks ago I preached on the the Pharisees and all their rules and regulations, and they had lots of them, Paul says, I kept them all. I was blameless. Now, I don't think that that's any kind of hyperbole or exaggeration on Paul's part. I think he really felt that he had. From an outward perspective, he said, I have all of these assets. And let's be honest, that's the way we look at our lives. Well, I'm not perfect. That's true. But I do have this for me. I'm a pretty moral person. I'm an upright person. I'm a good provider for my family. I contribute to the community. I'm a good churchgoer. I pay my tithe. I help out whenever there's anything that needs to be done at the church. I've got all of these assets, and yes, there are a few liabilities over here, but, but the assets outweigh the liabilities. And what Paul says is that I once thought that those were assets. I now consider all of those things as what? As loss. The word that he uses here is refuse. Dung is the literal translation. Dung. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul says, you know that side of the ledger that had all the assets? I've torn that page out. And over... All of those pages that really have all of my liabilities, I have placed one name, Jesus. And that, he says, is my only hope. Let me ask you the question, is that your only hope today? When you look at your own life, when you think about the time of your being called home by God. None of us is going to live on this earth forever. When you stand before that great white throne of judgment, 
and the secrets of your heart are open for all to see. There's no place to hide. There's no place to to grab anything to cover up with. You are just completely exposed. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you wish you could do if you only had the opportunity. And when all of that is exposed for all of creation to see, what are you going to say to the Lord? Are you going to say, well, I know I wasn't perfect, but here are my assets. Or are you going to plead the blood and the mercy of Jesus Christ over your life? I had a woman in my last parish. She was a crusty old lady. Wonderful lady, though. You know, one of those ladies that, you know, she just called it as it was. And uh, she was one of those people who really felt that she was a pretty good individual. She once said to me, she said, you know, when your pre- until your predecessor came here, his name was Frank Limehouse, she said, until Frank Limehouse came here, she said, I didn't even know I was a sinner. She said, now you're here. And I realize I'm a miserable sinner. Well, toward the end of her life, uh, when she was dying, she died of old age, she was in her 90s, I went to see her, and she had a Bible right next to her table. And I asked her, I said, are you afraid to die? And she said, no. And I said, what are you going to say to Jesus when you first see him? And she said, have mercy. And I said, Mary Bachelor, I'll see you in glory. Because she understood that that's our only hope. Jew or Gentile, our only hope is the mercy of Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this great epistle to the Romans. We thank you that Paul is merciless. He will not let us off the hook. He's determined to bring us to the point where we have nothing, nothing to offer to God that he should accept us. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. Paul wants to strip away every sense of self-confidence that we might have, that our confidence might be in Jesus Christ alone, that when we see him on that last great day, we might not plead our assets, we may not fear our liabilities, we might rely solely and completely on the mercy of God. Grant that this may be true in our lives. Whatever confidence we have in the flesh, strip it away. Whatever it takes. And make us dependent on Jesus alone. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.